Today, we're going to look at the Music Corporation of America, or MCA, which started off in Chicago in the 1920s as a band booking agency and uh, eventually grew to become the most powerful entertainment company the world had ever seen by the 1950s and 60s, effectively controlling film and television in America and therefore a large amount of it in the world. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Lou Wasserman, who he didn't found the company, a guy named Jules Stein did, but uh, Lou is going to be the main character we're going to focus on. He took over as president in the, uh, in the 1940s and would really lead MCA from being dominant in, in band booking into what we're more focused on here, which is film and television. We're going to look at the strategies and tactics that Lou Wasserman and the MCA organization used, uh, what opportunities they saw, what moves they made, and what, what was going on in kind of the background macro picture that allowed them to, to pull off such an incredible rise of a company. The book we're going to be referring to today is called The Last Mogul, Lou Wasserman, MCA, and The Hidden History of Hollywood by Dennis and McDougal. I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, it's um, it's really a a story of, of MCA and and Lou Wasserman is the guy they're referring to as the last mogul. First, let's talk a little bit about what a band booking company is. A, a band booking agency is pretty much what it sounds like. Um, it's a company that uh, will sign agreements with bands, you know, like a rock band, or back then it was more like big band music. And, um, and then they will go to venues like nightclubs, places like that, and uh, negotiate an agreement for the band to play uh, at the venue. And then the, uh, the band booking agency will collect a commission, which is uh, basically always 10% of what the band makes. Um, the way these agreements are made is between the agency and back then it was with the band leader. Band leader, um, they had a, a, an interesting kind of organizational structure in these bands. All the guys in the band would play and then you'd have the band leader uh, who was um, basically Ricky Ricardo, right? Uh, the Desi Arnaz character in I Love Lucy, like he was a band leader, right? So he actually had a, uh, a kind of elevated status as the band leader and he would negotiate deals on behalf of the band with, with the agency. As we segue to talking about how MCA pulled off this incredible ascent, uh, let's talk for a moment about Lou Wasserman. Lou, um, he joined as a mid-level publicity director in the mid-1930s. Um, but within, and within a couple of years, he'd become the founder, Jewel Stein's protege. And he'd become president of the company in the 1940s, I believe. So who was this guy? He was, he's one of those guys where when he was young, um, you know, he started working off as an usher in a movie theater in Cleveland where he'd grown up um, and eventually um, moved around and, and kind of got involved with this casino called the Mayfair in, in Cleveland and was doing publicity there. He was really known as being quite charismatic. He was a tall and kind of lanky guy. Um, and he, he could really charm people, right? He was a publicity guy. And so he did a really good job of hobnobbing with all of Cleveland's um, socialite scene. And back then there was actually quite a bit more than, than you might think these days. Um, you know, you think about Cleveland used to be one of the wealthiest cities in America at one point. 
um, you know, the Standard Oil Company with John Rockford actually started in Ohio before eventually moving out to, to New York. So there was actually quite a bit of money. There was a big mafia scene there. The, the Cleveland mob was big and they would eventually go on to be quite big in Las Vegas. Um, so yeah, Lou, he had the charisma. And the second thing he had was this incredible work ethic. And that's another thing that everybody tells you about him. Uh, at MCA, through his entire time with the agency there, he was famously always working, right? Like he was on the West Coast, uh, MCA based out of Los Angeles. So the guy would be up and on the phone at five or 6 a.m. like every single day because the people in New York, um, in the New York division of the company, they would be at work by eight or 9 a.m. So he'd be on the phone with them and when he'd, uh, and he'd be working till, off until midnight uh, on the West Coast. Or if he was in New York, he'd be, you know, working uh, starting at like, you know, eight or 9 a.m. And then he'd be working till well after midnight because the, the um, LA people were still working until, until mid-evening. Um, so he had this incredible work ethic, six days a week. Apparently, at some point, Sundays became sacred to him and his family. They'd go out to Palm Springs near LA. They'd have like pool parties. And apparently, he'd really let his hair down and, and hang out and be kind of a normal, charming guy again. But, um, but he had this work ethic, and he molded this personality for himself um, during working hours of really turning off that charisma a lot of the time. And he became known as this really cold, calculating, almost robotic person, um, which was only furthered by the fact that he only wore, like he wore a uniform every day, essentially. Uh, rumor is he was colorblind. And so uh, his wife, Edie, um, started dressing him in just white shirt, black suit, black tie every day. That was just what he wore. I think that people uh, said it kind of looked like a penguin, but that became the uniform. All the MCA agents who worked for him would wear this same uniform. It became their their signature look. And so he, he really took business incredibly seriously. Uh, as I said, he could be charming and charismatic when he wanted to be, but whether because this was intentional or because he felt like, or because it naturally happened as part of the job as an agent uh, and the way he conducted business, he became this really cold and, and ruthless person. You know, he, he would yell, he would shout at people, but he didn't usually start off that way. Uh, he would usually start off speaking very quietly. People said he used very few adjectives, you know, way, way fewer adjectives than the average person would use in a, in a sentence when they're speaking with somebody else. But then he could really build into a crescendo uh, and and pull out this this sh screaming thing. I mean, and he would really belittle people. He could be quite cruel. Uh, he would throw things at people if he was displeased with them in a meeting. You know, at his subordinates, he would throw pencils at people. Apparently, if he took off his Rolex watch and threw it at you, that was basically a death sentence for you. You were basically going to get kicked out of the company. <laughs> um, that was that was the final straw. He was a really hard negotiator. Um, he he was really intimidating. You know, he, he brought this robotic, uh, cold ruthlessness um, together with this ability to, to turn it off and be charismatic. And he uses really, really effectively together to be an extremely effective negotiator on behalf of his clients. At the same time, the guy had an incredibly bright in, uh, level of intelligence. Everyone says from the time he was young, he was incredibly smart. He's just one of those guys where you meet him 
And within a few minutes, you realize this guy is operating on another level. He was smart and he could show it in a way that didn't feel like showing off. But you couldn't you couldn't BS him. He really saw through all of that. Um, he also seemed to feel like being an agent was not exactly the most glamorous business. He It was said that he wanted to change the image of an agent from being a sleazy pimp to being much more sophisticated. And so that actually ties back into this whole idea of him wearing this black suit and black tie every day. It, it was seen as kind of formalizing something that was seen as a, a kind of venal industry. But regarding his level of intelligence, none of them had the mind that Wasserman had. He could walk into a theater and tell you how many kernels of corn were in a bag of popcorn, how many bags were sold, and whether the house was being cheated or not. He had that kind of mind. So he really was a guy where, even though he, he saw the big picture and could see the strategy and, uh, and operate at that high level, he did not ignore the details. He retained that, that ground level understanding from his days as being an usher and, and working kind of those floor level jobs. The final thing is he was a man who was continually learning. You know, he seemed to have a very curious mind and, um, and this manifested itself in really interesting ways. One way that I found interesting um, that he seemed to differentiate MCA back in the 40s and 50s as they were growing their film and radio businesses, especially film, is, um, is something really mundane sounding. And yet it was um, it really differentiated them with regard to ha uh, being able to sign and retain clients like actors. Quote, Lou Wasserman, the most potent single figure in show business today, is mightily admired for his imaginative approach to taxes. Without formal legal training, says one top theatrical lawyer, he knows more about taxes than any of us. Show business contracts have jumped from two to 100 pages since the war, that's World War II, partly to accommodate the deals devised by Mr. Wasserman. We'll talk about this in a little bit, but he he really did have that whole package of understanding how to work with people, understanding how businesses worked at these really detailed levels, and he understood uh, how to how to craft increasingly complex deals that benefited MCA and their clients. We're not going to talk very much about Jules Stein, the founder of MCA. Uh, he was incredibly in instrumental, obviously, in establishing the company and growing its band booking business from nothing into really a dominant force in, in band booking and eventually in radio in America. Um, but really, as, as the company transitioned from band booking and radio into film and television, Jules gradually became less involved and it really became more of a ship run by Lou than by Jules. And so as important as Jules was to the company, we're not going to focus on him. What I will say about the guy is he's a pretty interesting character. He's very status driven. Um, he was actually a doctor. He was trained as an ophthalmologist. And um, the rest of his life, you really get the sense that he always regretted uh, the what he saw as the low status profession of being an agent, right? Representing bands and eventually movie stars. He saw being a doctor as this really high status, uh, desirable identity. And he, he seemed to really uh, feel 
almost guilty about being an agent, a salesman all those all those decades, regardless of how much money it made him, how powerful he became, uh, what kinds of introductions and relationships in, in, with people in power it was able to grant him. Uh, he always really wanted to be a, known as a doctor. Uh, later on in life, he would uh, make sure that everyone called him Dr. Jules Stein. Heaven help you if you didn't call him doctor uh, to his face. And he ended up donating lots and lots of money to establish uh, ophthalmology centers and like eye research and blindness uh, prevention kinds of uh, centers at UCLA and places like that. So um so that's Jules Stein. He was a, a really aggressive guy, very thoughtful as well. I think it was that combination of things that allowed him to really consolidate so much of that band booking agency. Uh, but as I said, we're, we're not going to talk a ton about Jules Stein. It's really going to be more Lou or, or Lou and Jules together in this, uh, in this episode. So how did Lou Wasserman... I'm just going to use Lou to stand in for Lou and, and Jules Stein. It, it'll be easier. Um, so how did Lou Wasserman grow MCA from this admittedly already successful band business when he joined the company in the mid thirties? Uh, but how did he grow to be so dominant in radio and then eventually, and especially film and television? And there were a few big steps there. Um, the first was, as I mentioned, they really cornered the market on band bookings. Uh, now, how did they do that? Well, a lot of this is pretty straightforward tactical stuff. It's not that interesting strategically, but it is worth mentioning because this comes up in, in basically almost every story about you know successful companies in their early days. A lot of it was just a lot of hard work, long hours. Uh, this is an, a talent representation business. It's basically a deal-making business. So being good at negotiating, being creative in negotiating, um, having a good eye for talent. Um, one thing that they did that was a little bit different, it sounds almost obvious, and yet uh, it was actually uh, unusual at the time. MCA was pretty thoughtful about how they, how they made decisions for their clients to book them. Uh, and by that, I mean, uh, most other agents who would book their bands for to go play at, you know, a, a restaurant or a club or something like that, um, they, would, they would just take whatever the best paycheck was available at the time, right? So it was um, because agents just get are compensated by getting 10% of whatever the client gets. If venue A will pay, you know, an extra $10 uh, versus uh, venue B, then you're going to venue A. But MCA took a longer term view and they, they thought about moving bands around from different venues, so playing a venue for a while, moving up to the next venue. And that next venue, yes, it should pay well, but it should also expand the audience for this band. It should increase their stature so that over time you can gradually uh, command more and more money for that band because they're like a national hit. So they, this actual long term kind of thoughtful, like career career focused almost you could you could call it like a career focused approach to band bookings that was quite new or at least quite unusual at the time and uh it, you know it's one of those things where it, it takes time to play out but once it did it, it definitely helped bring uh help the company sign more bands because they could say hey look I, you know i took all these bands who were nobodies before and i helped them grow into the being these really successful bands now who are playing all these fancy places across the country 
So that was the first one. A lot of this is just usual stuff, just being kind of thoughtful, creative, hardworking in the, the core job of being a, a band booking agent. The second one was um, exclusivity. Second thing they did was exclusivity. First, they would get these bands and get exclusive contracts. That's not unusual. Um, but then what they would do is they would leverage a lot of these bands and then they would go to these venues and say, hey, I have all these good bands. Uh, I want an exclusive contract with you, venue. Um, so your nightclub is only going to be able to book bands that are represented by MCA. And if you're the venue, you're not going to like that because it limits the number of bands you can get. So the uh, <laughs> MCA had two ways of of basically squeezing the venue on this and getting them to agree to this. The first was... Uh, you might call it a version of the carrot. And they would say, okay, venue, if you don't agree to an exclusive arrangement with us, not only are you not going to get these little bands that I want you to take, you're not going to get any of these big bands. And I'm going to send them across the street to your competitors, and they're going to be way more successful because they've got these popular bands that I gave them, and you're going to be out of business. So either you can be exclusive with me, or you're, you can find yourself frozen out of being able to book any of these top bands that I have. Most venues across the country in the 1930s would agree to this. They didn't feel like they had a choice. If you're any individual venue, and you know most of these places are just mom and pop owned, right? They're not big chains of venues or something. They're just like little, you know, um, nightclubs in Cleveland or Kansas City or wherever. So most of these guys would just agree to MCA's terms. They wouldn't be happy about it, but they'd do it and they would do okay in business. And then there's the stick. If the venue didn't agree to to uh, MCA's terms with exclusivity, then this is where um, this is where kind of the darker side of MCA's history comes in. They had mob connections. Jules Stein and actually Lou Wasserman there at his casino in Cleveland. They both uh, made friendly with the mobs in Chicago and Cleveland. And if you as a venue owner didn't agree to MCA's terms, but MCA felt like you were important to them, you could find your venue in big trouble. They would bond, you might find your venue bombed and now you're, you're out on the street. And so uh, this, this exclusivity uh, first on the band representation side <laughs> allowed them to then coupled with some mob connections uh, get exclusivity with uh, with venues, and that allowed them to make a ton of money back in you know, the depression. Essentially, the 1930s. They uh, even though the the country was in a depression, uh, MCA was making money hand over fist and growing across the country, and so that was extremely successful for them. Um, so they the the first step, as I said, they cornered the market on bands, and that's how they did it. Then they leverage these bands to get into radio, right? So this is kind of from phase one to phase two. So, okay, band booking was the original business. And how do we kind of take that and expand to the next thing? So what they did was they, they leveraged bands to get on the radio. They put the bands they represented, they already had exclusive deals in place, and they started putting these guys on radio programs, right? Like, it makes perfect sense. Um, but that's, that's where you start uh, tying in the creativity of the deal making and the real aggressiveness that Jules and, and Lou Wasserman had. 
um, they, um, they started doing what's called packaging radio programs. So rather than just going to a radio station or a radio network and saying, hey, here's this band they represent, you should put them on and you know, give them a segment on your show. What they would do is they would go and they'd get an advertiser, like American Tobacco Company or something like that. They would say, okay, we're going to go get an advertiser and then we're going to go to a radio network and say, hey, radio network, we have uh, some funding in the form of an advertiser. We have this. Uh, we have all these bands that we're gonna that we represent. We want a you know weekly show uh, on your th- on your radio bro- program. Here here's the entire package. Right? We put together all the key pieces. It's turnkey for you. All you have to do is say yes. Pay us the amount of money we want for this thing, and it's all taken care of. You don't have to worry about anything. Uh, sounds like a good deal for the radio network, right? Like all the work's been done for you. So what does MCA get out of this? Well, they get a couple of things. The first thing they get is they get to get their usual 10% agent's commission on the band that they brought in. But then they also tell the radio network, look, man, I'm doing a lot of your job here, right? Like I'm actually bringing together advertisers and the bands and all the creative pieces and, and designing the show for you. I'm doing all your work. I should get compensated for that. And so the radio network says, okay, well, what do you want? MCA says, I want 10% of, uh, of the budget paid to me as a fee. We're going to call it a packaging fee. I put together this whole package for you. So in addition to the to getting 10% of my clients income from this show, I'm also going to charge you the network 10% of the budget. So if the budget was, I don't know, $1,000 uh, to make this show, you're going to pay me an extra 100 as a fee for doing all your work for you. And the radio networks did it. It was a good deal. They still got successful bands on, which again, that was the key. They can uh, MCA controlled the essentially the content creators, these bands, and therefore that gave them a lot of leverage with the radio networks. And MCA is really credited. In fact, Lou Wasserman personally took credit for inventing the radio package. Um, they were really good at this at MCA. They, they perfected uh really a lot of this radio um stuff in the 1930s they became so good at it that they actually um they actually made famous a ventriloquist act on the radio right they, they had this guy they represented for live like in-person appearances he was a ventriloquist you know the guy he's got the little dummy um and he pretends it talks he does the two two different voices they made that guy a radio star if you could imagine such a thing there's no visual how do you do that that's how good this guy was of a talent. And that's how, frankly, visionary, I think, MCA was. And the fact that they were able to pull that off and make this guy really popular is, is really astounding and, and a good indication of how powerful MCA was that they could get a radio network to try something crazy like that. And how, frankly, good at their jobs MCA was, not just in getting the deal done for this, but actually making it successful. And then from there, once once they were really successful in the radio business, MCA then set their sights on Hollywood, right? So this is the 1930s. Um, Hollywood was really, really roaring at this point, right? The studios uh, were making tons of money. And uh, and so Jules Stein and, and Lou Wasserman saw this massive opportunity out there. And so how did Lou turn MCA into this dominant talent agency, right? Uh, 
Well, the, there was a pretty clear strategy, actually, um, that Lou and, and Jules had from the beginning. They knew it was about movie stars, right? They saw if you control the content creators, right, the stars in band booking, that allowed you leverage over the venues, it allowed you leverage over the radio uh, networks. So uh, we're going to take the same playbook and we're going to run it again on the film industry. Now, the big obstacle in the film industry is that it operated very differently back in the 1930s. Um, in that uh, these studios had what was called the, the studio system or the star system. These studios would sign movie stars to seven-year contracts, and that made them ex the, the actor exclusive to that studio during those seven years. It gave you, uh, gave the star, uh, you know, laid out like, here's how much money you're going to make per week, right? You're on salary, just like a normal W-2'd salary employee these days. Um, and it commits you to making a certain number of movies a year, um, and it gave you a bunch of perks, right? You get a driver or maybe they give you a house that you kind of pay, buy back from or pay off the, to, to the company over time. Um, they would also do a lot of very unpleasant personal service for you. So women would get abortions and, uh, um, and, and the studio would arrange for all of it and pay for all of that. And if, um, if uh, an actor got in a drunk driving accident, the studio would kind of make the whole thing go away. So it was uh, it was a very it, it was a very uh, studio controlled industry back in the 1930s, um, and the studio heads would uh, they really got to decide right as as you would imagine what movies got made and who was in them, and they really had total control over this. And if um, you know Louis B. Mayer at MGM wanted to make a movie and he, with a certain movie star, he didn't have that actor or actress in, in, the, in the MGM kind of family under contract, uh, maybe they were at Warner Brothers, who would call Jack Warner, who ran Warner Brothers, and say, hey, uh, can I borrow, <laughs> you know, so-and-so for, for this movie? And Jack Warner will say, oh, okay, well, yes, I'll trade you, right? Uh, kind of like um, like a temporary swap of, of uh, actors, right? You give me her and I'll give you him, and, or it might be for money. Okay, fine, you know, pay me $50,000 and you can have her for that movie. Um, and so that's the way it worked, right? And these were the actors were kind of like baseball cards to all these studio owners. And, you know, the actors actually liked it, right? Like there's a lot to like about it uh, in the sense that um, they became rich by, by anybody's standards. This is the depression we're talking about, especially in the 1930s. So, you know, everybody's just destitute in the, in the country and across a lot of the world. And then you got these movie stars who are living real well. They've got guaranteed income because they're under seven-year contracts. They have to make a couple of movies a year. But you know what? They're doing fine. And again, you get all these perks to make you feel really special, right? The driver and the chef and all that good stuff. So that was the big obstacle that, that Lou is going to have to deal with in Hollywood when he, when he shows up. You might say, well, like, okay, well, why don't you just make your own stars, right? If you're MCA, you can develop talent from the beginning, uh, find them when they're... Uh, when they're nobodies, before they get scooped up by a big Hollywood studio, and uh, and then develop them as stars. You can do that, and they did sometimes, right? Betty Grable, who was the big 1940s, you know, the, the pinup girl that uh, in, during World War II, she was the one that all the, the soldiers would have on uh, little posters of in their, uh, in their bunks uh, during World War II. Uh, she really was one of those um, uh, stars that MCA essentially helped create. She was a nobody before she signed on with MCA. She was uh, singing with a band and the MCA had the band leader under exclusive contract and uh, they signed Betty Grable. She wasn't that talented, frankly, she, but she was fine. She could carry a tune. She had the right look. 
about her that um, that MCA felt like, you know, this, she might be the total package here. So over a, a, a number of years, they built her into this thing. So right when World War II came around, um, she was perfectly po uh, positioned to be the pinup girl for, for soldiers at that time. But she was the exception. MCA normally didn't like building stars from scratch. They, again, they learned in the band business and in the radio business, it's much faster uh, <laughs> if you could just take existing stars and and uh, start monetizing them right away, right? Like it takes years and years and years to build a star from scratch and there's a lot of risk in there. Is it ever even gonna pay off? You'd rather just get an existing star. And so the trick is if you don't have any, how do you get some to begin with? Well, um, they uh, they played out a couple of strategies in order to, to get, uh, get going as fast as they could in the star representation business in Hollywood. Um, one of those was, um, was to get some big names whose careers had stalled. Um, so the first and most important one of those was Ronald Reagan. Uh, right, he was an actor back then. He, he was one of those guys, he knew everybody. He was under long-term contract with one of the studios. Um, but his career wasn't really taking off anymore. It was kind of looking like he was um, over the hill a little bit. And so, you know, he might be able to still have a long career at that point, but he wasn't somebody that... Um, that uh that was the, the a-list anymore but he was a big you know a big enough name to be respectable another one was joan crawford um she had been quite big uh some years before but her again her career was kind of on the downslide and so lou said you know i might be able to help these stars who have a lot of name recognition a lot of respect in the industry maybe they're not hot anymore um uh with the public as much but Maybe, maybe we can reinvigorate the careers a bit, right? So there is a whole strategy around reinvigorating a lot of these Hollywood veterans' careers. Ronald Reagan, in, in, in particular, um, he won't be, well, he'll be somewhat important as an actor uh, for MCA. The, the most important thing he does is uh, Lou renegotiates a seven-year agreement for Ronald Reagan after get, putting him into a movie that does quite well. He gets pretty well-reviewed. And uh, Lou gets him a seven-year, $1 million contract. It was the first, I think, million-dollar contract in the history of Hollywood. It was huge. Um, so, and, and Lou was then able to go around to other movie stars in the future and say, I'm the guy who got Ronald Reagan a million dollars. And everybody was just, wow, a million dollars. So, uh, but Ronald Reagan, as we now know, he would go on to do many, many other things. He would become the president of the Screen Actors Guild. That'll become very important in MCA's future here in a few minutes, as we'll see. And, uh, and then, of course, he'll become the governor of California and the president of, of the United States. Um, political influence will become incredibly important, um, both, at, both at the state and federal levels, but also with the, the unions. Uh, this is going to be one of the things that absolutely changes the game for MCA. So Ronald Reagan, like I said, not super important as an actor, but he's important for MCA in that uh, Lou gets him a great deal. And then uh, eventually they stay close. Reagan and, and uh, Lou stay close as uh, and they they kind of help each other as Reagan ascends in the political world. Um, but the another way that... Uh, that Lou went about getting stars in this, what you call a cold start problem in companies, right? Like you don't have any stars, how do you get some stars? Okay, so they're getting some people like Joan Crawford and Ronald Reagan who are no longer that big, but you know, maybe they've got some potential. They got, you know, one more quarter left in the in the game, if you will. 
Um, but they also played out some really interesting like targeted strategies around like Betty Davis. Betty Davis, they were able to get, even though she was already a huge star, she'd won two Oscars, um, was under contract with the studio. She, um, so she, she was really a bigger name and more successful person uh, than they should have been able to get at MCA, given how new they were to, to Hollywood. However, if you're new and you don't have a whole lot to offer, you have to sometimes make some concessions. So what did they, what did they have to give on Betty Davis? Betty Davis was incredibly hard to work with. And <laughs> she was not uh, oblivious to this. Like Betty Davis was very self-aware of how difficult she was. She said, if I'm, uh, if I'm in a good mood, I'm really great to work with. If I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but if I'm in a bad mood. I'm, I'm unpleasant. I make everyone around me unpleasant. That's just what it is. You have to deal with it. I'm Betty Davis. I am a, a two-time Oscar winner. Uh, I'm worth it. So she just churned through, I don't know how many agents and agencies. Uh, so she was always signing and firing uh, with talent agencies. And so, um, and so Jules Stein and, and Lou Wasserman saw her and said, if we can put up with her <laughs> and get her to put up with us, that could be the kind of stars that will attract others, right? Because that's not even a Ronald Reagan or a Joan Crawford. Betty Davis at this time was huge. So if we can get Betty Davis, that will at least give us um, so, some heat on us like, like a, and like a magnet attracting others. It will allow us to sign more actors. So it's worth it. So let's let's try to do it. So they, they were really smart. They um, they used the band booking business again. They signed this guy who had been a band leader, but he was not very successful. So they signed him to MCA's band booking business. The reason was because his old roommate and close friend, like best friend, was one of Betty Davis's ex-husbands. And they got this band leader to lean on his friend, to lean on Betty Davis to sign with MCA. I'm not kidding. I get this weird game of, uh, of dominoes falling, but it worked. It took, it took a, a few minutes for the whole thing to play out, but it did work. If you're Betty Davis, how many agencies are left at this point? You've probably been through half of them. So if you just wait your turn long enough, maybe you'd get her anyways. But using that band booking business, was uh, they used it to, to create an in with Betty, and they got it, and it worked. And this is where MCA um, really developed a point of view that they should just take care of a star every wins. Um a lot of agents back then, and maybe even to this day, they don't think of themselves necessarily as taking care of everything. I'm not going to deal with getting your kids into private school, or I'm not going to, you know, um, help, uh, you know, find you a chauffeur and things like that. Like you, you do all that yourself. Like either the studio does it for you, or you can hire a personal assistant. I'm not doing it. I'm an agent. My my job is to get you the best contract possible, and then you don't call me again. MCA took a different approach. I think with Betty Davis, you had to. Betty Davis, she wanted what she wanted. She was very difficult, very demanding. And um, and so MCA just knew if you want Betty Davis, that's the business you're getting into. And it worked really well. And it turned out to work really, really well with a lot of actors. So they were able to work uh, with a lot of notoriously difficult talent in Hollywood because they just resigned themselves to, to this mindset of, nothing's off limits. I will do anything for my client in order to keep them happy, keep them working. That's, that was step, or that was the second prong in what we might call a three-pronged strategy. The first prong was these older actors like Reagan and Joan Crawford, who, you know, kind of had some success, but were not hot right now. The second was people like um, Betty Davis, 
who um, it was really hot, but she uh, at the time, but she uh, she was she had some hair on her, <laughs> as as we would say in like the deal making world of today, like in in finance or M and A, like that 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 company has hair on it. Uh, Betty Davis was just really difficult. The third prong was acquisitions. Um, not uncommon in a lot of kind of B2B world where if you are trying to expand into a new product category or a new geography, um, you can maybe buy competitors of yours um, and just kind of immediately absorb those clients that they have uh, contracts and relationships with. And so they bought some agencies. For example, they bought Associated Artists, which got them Errol Flynn. And this was big. It was their first deal. Um, it was MCA's first deal in, in kind of Hollywood talent agency acquisition. And Errol Flynn, he was a big name um, at the time, yes. Uh, not the kind of name they could have easily gotten without Associated Artists, but also it has a secondary benefit. MCA didn't know at the time any of the studio chiefs, right? They're brand new in town. These studio guys, you know, they're, they're an old boys club, right? And so they didn't know MCA and MCA didn't know them. So how do you start getting meetings with Louis B. Mayer or Jack Warner or any of these guys? Well, you kind of need to have a seat at the table. Once you have Errol Flynn <laughs> and, the, and the agent who represents him, it gives you a reason to call Louis B. Mayer and, have, and for Louis B. Mayer to pick up the phone. That's very important in, in Hollywood, right? So buying associated artists not, got them not just Errol Flynn, it also got them uh, in, uh, relationships with all these major Hollywood studio chiefs. Um, the, but the really transformative acquisition for MCA in, in this world was um, buying an agency called Hayward Deverick. They purchased the Hayward Deverick agency in 1945, and it brought over a ton of stars. Um, just to give a, a fraction of the overall uh, movie stars and directors, Greta Garbo, Myrna Loy, Judy Garland, Ginger Rogers, Gregory Peck, Frederick March, Jimmy Stewart, Henry Fonda, Gene Kelly, Fred Astaire, David Niven, Billy Wilder, Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, it was an absolute coup for MCA. Uh, it was something that Jules Stein really orchestrated. And the way he got it done is the way so many company acquisitions happen uh, over the years, right? It was the founders had a bunch of value, um, Hayward and Endeavor. Uh, they had a bunch of value tied up in the company, right, representing all these actors. But one of them, uh, Hayward specifically, he wanted a bunch of money. His wife wanted to move to Connecticut. He was living in New York City. His wife wanted to move to Connecticut and have like a you know big house out in the country and all that. He didn't really have enough cash flow for that, even though he's representing all these movie stars. Um, so we could talk, we'll talk a little bit about wealth versus kind of high salaries in a little bit. Uh, but uh, yeah, bottom line is Hayward never very successful, incredible list of clients. They were an absolute top tier talent agency back then. Um, but the founders wanted out, man. You know, like that, that happens sometimes. Um, they wanted liquidity uh, for, their, for all the value they have tied up in their company. And also Hayward wanted to start producing Broadway shows and things like that. And that takes money. So Jules Stein said, fine, I'm going to pay you guys a, a big lump of money and you're, you're going to get that. And then, you know, Hayward, you can go buy, build your big house out in Connecticut. And then number two, MC will commit to producing a bunch of these Broadway shows for you, Hayward. And then Hayward gets everything he wants, right? He gets a whole bunch of money. They'll, they'll keep him on as a vice president. Uh, at MCA after the acquisition. But more importantly, he doesn't have to do anything. They don't care about Hayward, especially. What they want is his client list. 
Um, and then uh, Hayward will make your shows for you. And he gets his, he gets a commitment to get his Broadway shows made. Now he's a Broadway producer, which uh, even today, obviously, there's a, a, a lot of status around that. Back then, it was absolutely huge, right? Because movies were still new. TV didn't exist, uh, essentially. So it was uh, it was a huge, huge thing. So he got that. And, uh, and everyone won. And so all of a sudden, um, MCA now has a bunch of movie stars. And they started doing something that nobody, including Hayward Deverick, had really been doing. They started to view having all these actors the same, in Hollywood the same way that they viewed the bands uh, and the band booking in the radio business, which was it, almost a form of collective bargaining. Um, yes, the Screen Actors Guild and the Directors Guild, they exist, but realistically, a lot, you know, a lot of what those guilds do and what they do as collective bargaining, um, it dictates a lot of things around credits, like how you get credited in a movie, and it dictates working conditions and, and you know, how, how, what's the turnaround time between the ending of one day of shooting and the beginning of the next day. Like, there's a lot of that stuff that, that the guilds actually focus their time on, and rightly so. Um, economically, what the guilds are insuring is a lot of it's on health insurance and um, and things like like how much the least paid people. Like what's the minimum amount of money you're going to be paying uh, an actor or or a director right, to, to to make a feature film? The people at the top are the Gregory Pecks and the James Stewarts of the time. Like they're not affected by the economics of what the Screen Actors Guild negotiates, right? Like they're negotiating their own deals or their agents are, I should say. So, um, so if you're Jimmy Stewart or one of these guys uh, and your agent's negotiating for you with a studio, it's really just you versus the studio. What MCA started doing was, like I said, bringing that that band booking mentality of we control all of these bands. If you don't negotiate with us the way we want over band a you're not going to get any of the bands you got to pay us what we want for band a and you're going to take all these other bands with it same thing with with movie actors they said We're, we want you to put jimmy stewart in this movie and and jimmy stewart is going to make such and such amount of money the studio chief says that's crazy i'm not paying jimmy stewart that much money and MCA says, fine, you're not getting Jimmy Stewart, and we're going to withhold all of our clients. We're not going to give you a single one of our many, many clients that we now have. And that became huge. This is what began extricating these Hollywood actors, the, 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 the top talent, from these seven-year deals. Right? Back, again, at, at, uh, you go back in time far enough, the actors really wanted these deals. But then MCA comes along and said, by the way, man, like you could be making way more money. I know you think you're rich right now. You ain't rich. You don't know what rich is yet. <laughs> we're going to show you what rich is. Trust us. We're going to do some hard negotiating and, uh, and just go along with it, and you're going to get really, really rich. And so they, they pulled all these actors out from, from basically being W-2 employees of the studios into being independent contractors hired on a film-by-film -film basis. And that really broke the, the stranglehold that these movie studio chiefs had over Hollywood. No longer did these studios have these long-term deals in place with the actors. Now MCA and the other agencies, for what it's worth, got to negotiate every movie on a one-off basis, essentially, which allowed MCA to maximize the value uh, that each client was getting every single movie. In addition to collective bargaining, Lou and, and Jules had some other interesting like, innovations 
that they put into the contracts for their stars that um, that really changed the game for them, right? It made independent stars much, much wealthier than they otherwise could have become. And look, actors talk, man. They all hang out at the Brown Derby together uh, or Chasen's, right? These fancy, you know, Hollywood restaurants of the day. They talk. And so actors, you know, somebody's talking to Betty Davis and Betty Davis is saying, oh my God, I'm making so much more money than I used to make. MCA is the best. And so everybody else says, wow, how did that happen for you? And Betty Davis says, well, uh, we did something called Incorporate, for example. Uh, what happened was rather than just having the studio pay Betty Davis as a um, as an employee, right, like a contractor, and and where all of that money just shows up right in, in Betty Davis's bank account as as a contractor, as an individual, Jules and Lou said, "Well, let's do for you what companies do. Let's set up a company for you." They called it BD Incorporated, like Betty Davis Incorporated. It's a per. I'm going to quote now, a personal services and production company that Stein created for her in 1942. Uh, and under this company, Davis now held a profit position in every film she made for Warner Brothers, as did Stein, who owned 10% of her company. Beginning with a movie called A Stolen Life in 1946, Betty Davis still drew down a fat weekly paycheck of $7,000. But now, in addition to her salary, BD Inc. collected 35% of her film's profits. Uh, this, this was absolutely game-changing for actors. It may not sound like it at first, but it's really important to understand a couple of things. The first was that um, for the actor... This was a massive, massive way to avoid taxes. Um, taxes back then were incredibly onerous for high earning people. Um, the top marginal rates back then were like 90%, right? So if you're making $7,000 a week or whatever the number is in salary, um, depending on where the tax brackets fall, you're paying the bottom line, you're paying 90% marginal rates on some amount of that income. So you're getting absolutely taken to the cleaners by the IRS. So uh, Jules and Lou came up with this idea. Well, if we incorporate you as uh, as a company, uh, yeah, you'll get your weekly paycheck to live on. You got to pay taxes on that. There's no way around it. However, let's funnel as much money as we can, not to you directly, into this company. You won't take it as income yet. Uh, and and all of the, uh, in this case, film profits go into that company. It sits there and it, you know, it, it gets invested in somewhere and things like that. So it, it accrues money over time. And then what they would do is that Lou and, and Jules would eventually at some point go back to the movie studio and say, hey, Warner Brothers or whoever, hey, um, you know, do you want to buy our interest in this uh, in this company here? It's, uh, it's making all this money uh, or it's got all this money tied up in it. If you want to buy it from us, you can. And if the if movie studios bought back these rights from the uh, from the uh, from the company, uh, basically bought out pieces of the company from them, then what happens is that you can record that as a capital gain, which was taxed at like twenty five percent rather than ninety percent marginal income rates. So there's this absolutely extraordinary tax benefit to structuring things this way. Or if you don't want to sell off the pieces to the studios, you can sell it to somebody else entirely. Or they could uh, simply withdraw money over time as Betty Davis needs it. Uh, but she could do that 5, 10, 20 years down the road if she wants. And, and the money's been out there uh, 
at low to no tax rates, making more money, right? Accruing uh, incremental value. So this was a huge, huge thing. I cannot understate how important this was in turning what had been high salary, um, and don't get me wrong, still rich people in Hollywood, these actors, it turned them from high income, fairly rich people into still high income, but especially stratospherically wealthy people. They were making way more money through these company, through these corporations than they were uh, just getting direct income. And these kinds of profit stakes that Betty Davis and others would be getting, that was only uh, possible because of that collective bargaining power that Lou and Jules brought when they went to negotiate with the studios. Not, not just anybody could get that for their client, not just every client could get it. But if you had the power and knew how to use it the way MCA did, um, you could get it for them and you could help them keep the money, right? So it was the strategy of having uh, of the collective bargaining muscle uh, coupled with the tax and legal understandings of how to not just get the money in the first place, but hold on to it and not have it taken all by the IRS. So that was the main thing that MCA would do. And, and I don't know if they invented it. They certainly popularized it and they used it and it worked really well. It lot, attracted lots of other actors, right? Uh, that's an obvious thing you can do is just tell the actors, hey, do you want to be rich or do you want to be wealthy? If you want to be wealthy, come to MCA and we'll make you wealthy. Um, another thing that they did, this was a temporary uh, tax scheme. I just, I love it. I have to talk about it. Um, there was a time between World War II and the kind of early, uh, maybe mid-1950s in which um, the U.S. government created this really bizarre loophole. I actually, I, I don't know why they created such a thing. It may have been something to do with helping rebuild Europe after World War II. That's my best guess. I, I haven't looked into it. But there was this tax loophole that says if an American citizen lived and worked 17 out of 18 months, um, then that person owed no U.S. income taxes. Um, I don't know what the tax treaties were like between the U.S. and all these European countries back then, in England or France or Italy. Let's not get into that. The bottom line is it was a huge opportunity to avoid taxes if you knew what to look for. And MCA, very good at tax and law. They, they saw this loophole. And so they would send these actors, like Clark Gable, they told him, hey, buddy, we signed you up for three movies with Warner Brothers on them. And uh, you're going to be over there for the next 18 months. You cannot spend more than 30 days <laughs> in in the United States in the next 18 months. And Clark Gable's like, what? I'm going to Europe for a year and a half? Why? So they explained it to him. Because by doing this, you're going to make three movies, you're going to make a bunch of money, and you're going to pay no taxes on it. And he said, sign me up. And so the, these were the kinds of innovations that MCA brought, or at least if not outright innovations, these were the kinds of things that MCA did that allowed them to, to really do great deals for their clients, uh, which, allows, which allows you not only to keep those clients, it allows you to go, attract more clients. And as I mentioned, uh, this was in the quote here a, a couple of minutes ago, uh, it's also a way to double dip, right? So not only is MCA getting 10% of Betty Davis's weekly $7,000 checks, that's 700 bucks a week for MCA, they're also getting 10% of Betty Davis's company. 
Um, they weren't necessarily legally obligated to that 10% equity ownership stake. That's just the way they structured it. It works for Betty. And so um, they get that. Betty Davis is more than coming out ahead on this whole equation. She, she knows and understands what's going on. But MCA wins too, right? And that's how they make so much money. And uh, just like in the band booking business, right? If you're making all this money, it allows you to use that money to go to the next step. So just like, uh, you know, they use all that band booking money to acquire the Hayward Deverick agency to get ahead in Hollywood quickly. So they, the MCA guys really understand how to accumulate capital through a combination of good negotiating as well as uh, kind of tax and legal structuring, and then using that wealth that's accumulated to level up their company, right? So take the next rung on the up the ladder, um, and, and continue growing the business and expanding into adjacent categories. Out of all the innovations and great negotiating strategies that. Lou and Jules put together for their clients to enrich their clients, enrich MCA, and accumulate power and, and control over Hollywood. Uh, without a doubt, the most important, at least the most famous, um, was, uh, was what Lou Wasserman negotiated for his client, Jimmy Stewart, um, for two films in 1950. Uh, Jimmy Stewart had b been very famous and successful in Hollywood in the late 1930s. Um, he'd been in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and the Philadelphia Story. These were very successful movies, critically claimed. He did well, the movies did well. And uh, But then, during World War II and shortly afterward, he was in some bombs. He was in like It's a Wonderful Life shortly after the war. And even though that's obviously a famous and beloved movie now, it was not, not a big hit at the time. And so by the late 40s, he was really kind of done with Hollywood. He'd actually gone back to Broadway and started doing stage stuff again. He, he was sort of out of the game. And so, um, and so uh, he was on a, in a, a play called Harvey about an imaginary six-foot-tall rabbit um, that's friends with this guy. Um, Elwood P. Dowd is the character that Jimmy Stewart plays. It, it's actually a really wonderful movie, uh, one of my favorites. Uh, and, um, and he was playing it on Broadway. He got a lot of acclaim for his portrayal of the character on Broadway. And, um, so movie studios wanted to make Harvey. And so Lou Wasserman got, uh, went to the studios and said, okay, you can, it was Universal that, that they were going to make the movie with. So I'm going to quote here. Lou told Universal that they could have Harvey at a reasonable price, $150,000 for the rights to the play and $200,000 plus a share of the net profits for Jimmy Stewart's services. But Universal had to agree to make a second movie, a Western replete with cliches, but with a nice twist at the end. The terms were, were to be quite different from the straight salary option in the Harvey deal. Stewart would forego salary altogether, but he would get half the profits from Winchester 73. Getting a piece of the profits of a movie was not new. Um, this had happened before. Betty Davis, as I mentioned, had already been getting, I think, some of the um, the profits uh, from her films into her little corporation. But this was not something that was done in a meaningful way, right? It was sort of like icing on the cake. If the movie's a big, big hit, maybe there's, so, there's some net profits that come. 
Um, and again, given the tax advantages, the corporations made a big difference for the actors, even though the money wasn't as huge um, in gross terms. The net that came out at the end was still quite quite nice. Um, giving half the profits of a film to an actor was unheard of. Right? It was just that this had not happened, as far as I know. Um, but the studio Universal, they agreed to it because they said, look, Harvey's this huge hit play. Jimmy Stewart's great in it. What, what, how can it go wrong? And then there's this Western. Like, okay, it's a nothing Western. We don't really want to make it. But hey, Jimmy Stewart is going to do that for free. And all we have to do is give up half the profits for some Western nobody ever heard of. Great. Harvey's going to be a big hit. We'll pay Jimmy Stewart his normal amount of money, and that'll be great. And uh, and then Winchester seventy three, you know, like it's you know it's all upside for us. We don't want to make it, but um, it won't cost very much, and uh, it's probably going to be a kind of mediocre thing. It won't make much money. It'll be fun. Well, of course, <laughs> Murphy's Law exists, and so what happens? Harvey, while being a, a very well liked movie uh, <laughs> over the following decades, did not uh, did not perform very well. It was kind of a dud at the time. Winchester seventy three, on the other hand. Um, did not really stand the test of time. It's not a great Western. It's not terrible. It's just, it, it's not great. But it was a big hit. And it made Jimmy Stewart like three times as much money as he got from Harvey, right? So he got like $200,000 for Harvey. He got, he ended up making like $600,000 on, uh, on Winchester 73. And that collectively, plus whatever he already had in the bank, already had in the bank, made him a millionaire. And this, this absolutely changed the game for Jimmy Stewart. And, um, and the rest of Hollywood had now seen an example set. Stars could and would sometimes uh, forego more and more salary in exchange for more and more upside in, and command it. Um, and MCA specifically had, was increasingly getting the muscle um, to make that deal happen. And the other studio heads, like Louis Mayer at, uh, at MGM, he was furious. The guy running MC, uh, Universal was actually related to Louis Mayer. He was, I think, his son-in-law. Um, but he says uh, that that uh, his son-in-law, his lame brain son-in-law, had foolishly given away the store. Quote, no star would ever again be satisfied with anything less than half of the gross, meaning gross profits. And the cost to all of the studios would be exorbitant. The greatest of Hollywood's moguls, that's Louis B. Mayer, never did forgive his son-in-law for hastening the end of the studio system. End quote. In addition to these kinds of innovations and deals that Lou and, and Jules would do for their clients, they, um, they also understood at a, an industry level um, when new opportunities came around, right? And the big one that really changed the fortunes for, for MCA was television. When television came along in the 1940s initially, and then um, in the 50s, obviously, it, it really started growing and became uh, popular in people's homes. Um, uh, the most of the film studio heads really were threatened by television. They thought, if you have a television at home, why would you ever go to a movie theater? Um, so that's why, for example, movies are um, so widescreen. At least that's why that was originally created. Now directors do it because they like the it's called the aspect ratio, right? They like that rectangular look rather than something that's more shaped like a square. But back in the day, they were more square shaped. Um, and, um, and then when, uh, TVs came out, they were obviously going to be that shape, same kind of square shaped, um, aspect ratio. And so studios said, ah, well, if we make movies that are really wide, they won't show up very well on television. It'll be hard to watch them at home. 
It's a, it's, it's a complete rejection of technology and the opportunities that come along with technology. Uh, and uh, MCA, you know, they're just an agent. They saw television as great, more opportunities for actors to work. Just like they saw radio as an extension of the band business, right? It's not a replacement for it. it. What it does is it gives more people an opportunity to listen to these same bands that we already had. You don't have to go to the, uh, the venue to listen to this band. You can actually hear them from your home now. Same thing with television. It's just another opportunity. And a lot of these studios uh, at the time were actually struggling, or some of the studios were struggling. Paramount was one of them. Some of these guys were auctioning off, like selling their old film libraries. And the reason kind of made sense. If you didn't think television was going to be a big thing, um, then like you've got all these movies you've been making since like the 1910s or the 1920s. Nobody's going to go see these ever again um, because there's always new movies coming out. So why would anybody ever go to a movie theater to see these old movies? Maybe a few classics, but for the most part, um, for the most part, you know, who even knows what a classic movie is because there's no television to watch it, right? There's no way for newer people, younger people coming along to ever see these movies. So these older movies were thought to be kind of worthless. So Lou and Jules, very wise, uh, they saw the opportunity in television, they took a bet on it, and they purchased 700 films from Paramount's library, like a lot of these older movies. And then they went and they started licensing these movies to the uh, TV networks. These TV networks, they, they had you know, 5,000 plus hours a year that they needed to fill with content. Sure, you, you'll make new content news and sports and things like that to put on television but uh when lou and these guys who had film libraries went to them and said hey you can license these movies from us worked out great right and and lou and jules made a ton of money licensing these paramount films and it really got mca an initial foothold in television um this this 700 paramount film library just to put that into perspective that meant that mca a talent agency had the second largest film library after mgm who was you know, the, king, the, the king of the studios back then um and so mca was a huge power in television and um and then they they leveraged this power in television into the next step which was what could we do? What's the biggest thing we can do as an agency in television? Right? The answer is um, producing television. The problem is MCA is not allowed to produce television. Um, and th this was an important guild restriction. It actually still exists to this day. Um, it it kind of, there are exceptions that can be made, but generally um, the guilds, so like the Screen Actors Guild and the Directors Guild and the Writers Guild, maybe there's agreements with all the Hollywood studios and all the agencies. And those agreements say what you can and can't do. Uh, and one of the things that agencies cannot do is produce film and television. And there's actually a pretty good reason for that. It's about conflict of interest. If you are a TV uh, producer or movie producer, you ultimately make money off of profits, right? The net profits of a movie, right? You can make a movie for a hundred thousand, um, and it makes 150,000. You have $50,000 in profit, right? The agent, he takes a commission off of the, you know, 10% of the actor's fee. So if the actor's getting paid, you know, $50,000 or something, he's getting $5,000 check. Well, every dollar that that agent negotiates higher and higher for his actor's fee, right? That's, that's what an agent's supposed to do. Get the best deal possible for his or her client. Well, every incremental dollar that goes to the actor is a dollar less that the studio gets. And so if you are a producer of the film and you are representing 
the actor in the film, you actually have this conflict of interest where you have uh, one set of incentives uh, nudging you to get the actor more money, and then you have a separate set of incentives to reduce how much that actor gets so that you can increase the profits of the film. So a long time ago, the union said, we're, we're just going to clean this whole thing up right now. Agencies can own, I think, no more than 10% of uh, any kind of production entity, right? Studios, production companies, anything like that. So essentially what they're saying is if you're an agent, you can't produce movies and television shows. Well, that had that also existed in the radio days. And sure enough, uh, Jules, through his kind of shrewd deal-making, uh, finagles a waiver for MCA to produce radio programs. Um, they, and then Jules and Lou then took that same playbook and ran it again in television. They went to the unions and said, hey, look, this TV thing's starting up. None of these movie studio heads want TV to exist. They all wanted to die. So here, but here's the thing. It's not going to die. Television's going to succeed. All the TV networks are based in New York. So what's going to happen is if the movie studios don't play ball and produce content for television, the television companies are going to produce all of it themselves. What's going to happen then is they're going to, they're going to produce it all locally, right? That makes sense. Especially back then, you're going to produce things easily, which is in your own backyard. That's what they were already doing. They were producing whatever content they needed to out of New York City. What's going to happen? Well, Screen Actors Guild and Writers Guild, these are all local. These are all California guilds. So there's so Lou and Jules said, guys, you're going to lose all of your actors. All the TV production is all going to happen in New York. You're not going to have any control of it. They're not going to be your members. You're going to, there's going to be a, a West Coast, and there's going to be an East Coast, and they're going to be very separate. So guys, it makes sense for all of us if there's a lot of television production in L.A. Uh, that ends up going, you know, airing on the networks that are based out of New York. And if these movie studios won't do it, we'll do it. you got to give us a waiver. If you give us a waiver... Um, allowing MCA to produce television shows, then we will do for the industry what these boneheaded uh, <laughs> uh, movie studio heads won't do. We will embrace television and we will get all this great work for all of you, all of your your um, guild members, right? All these actors, more, more television shows means more work for everybody. Isn't that wonderful? And so now, was the Screen Actors Guild who, who MCA went to first? Screen Actors Guild, were they suspicious? Absolutely, right? Like the, again, the conflict of interest has not gone away. <laughs> Just to be clear, what they what the Screen Actors Guild has to weigh is what's the the bigger problem to deal with the the uh, the MCA specific conflict of interest around profitability, or the long term secular decline of acting in Hollywood in in, in California in LA. Well, MCA. Not, this is not their first rodeo. They stacked the deck here. Going into this entire negotiation, they convinced uh, their client, Ronald Reagan, who was very popular among the actors, to, uh, to become the Screen Actors Guild president. Uh, he, they'd asked him before, and MCA had been kind of putting the word out in Hollywood that uh, th through their kind of surreptitious channels that Reagan would be a great choice. People on the SAG board asked Reagan to do it. He sort of hemmed and hawed. I don't know if I really want to do that. I've, I've made all this money. I've got this ranch in, in LA. And I'm kind of okay right, with it right now. Um, and 
And so finally, MCA and everybody else finally convinced him, look, man, do it for the good of, of everyone else, right? Like, it's a selfless act of service. So he said, okay. So he became the president of SAG. And I'm not going to say he like rammed the, this uh, uh, waiver through, but yeah, like I think he helped build some consensus seems to be the answer, right? And so SAG uh, did uh, finally give the waiver in 1952 for MCA to produce television. I said from 1952 through the end of the decade, so through the end of December 1959, MCA can be a producer of TV and an agent, and we as SAG are going to be cool with that. MCA said, great. So then they went to the Directors Guild, I guess the Writers Guild, presumably, uh, and said, hey, look, here's what we hammered out with SAG. They're cool with it. Obviously, it must be a good idea. And so the other guilds eventually got in line as well. And now if you're universal, you're off to the races. Now they have what they had in radio, an exclusive ability as an agency to also produce television. This put an unbelievable amount of power in MCA's hands because they can decide who writes the show, who directs the show, who acts in the show. It got to the point in the 50s and 60s where Universal would literally, they owned, meaning their shows, their talent, occupied 75% of prime time uh, across the three major television networks. 75% decided by basically just Lou Wasserman. That's uh, an incredible amount of power in one producer's hands. They were, and again, they had all these stars, television stars, movie stars. So if you wanted one of them, you had to take the rest of them. Um, and so that's how they, they were able to absolutely dominate television, right? It was this political power. And this, I'm using the word political loosely, right? Political as far as Ronald Reagan and his position in ZAG to get them the waiver. And then they used that, that the fact that they represented so many of these actors and directors to um, you, you put those things together. And now you've got the recipe to utterly just own television production. Universal back then in the 50s and 60s and, and even into the 70s to some extent, they were absolutely dominant. And it really was a good reminder to MCA of the, the broader importance of politics in their business and how if you can change the rules um, and give yourself some sort of unique advantage, uh, that can be as impactful or more impactful than, than any kind of day-to-day uh, -day negotiating on behalf of your clients and a strategic position can be, right? Just, I mean, what's better than kind of winning within the rules? Changing the rules to be in your favor. And so after building MCA from this band booking business in the 1920s into a radio behemoth in the 30s, and finally into a film and television powerhouse in the 50s and 60s, uh, Lou Wasserman was getting old, at least by his description. I think he was 47, uh, and he was tired. He'd been working, like I said, like you know, six days a week, like 18-hour days. That was just his life. It was exhausting. And I think psychologically, you hear this from other agents, uh, it can be a very psychologically grating experience, right? You're catering to all these whims of all these movie stars, right? Uh, somebody complaining about, oh, my dressing room's, you know, painted green and I want it painted blue. Please, ha you know, ha have it taken care of, right? It's just that kind of stuff, right? You're trying to run a business and you've got people screaming at you with this kind of stuff and you have to do it, right? Like that was MCA's whole strategy. So by the time he was 47, he'd been working at, you know, every day of his life since he was like, 
13 or something like that in, in that little uh, as an usher in a movie theater in Cleveland. He wanted what most agents want. I don't want to say all, but most, right? Which is he he didn't want to uh, he didn't want to have to kind of convince a studio to have to make a movie. Um, and I say convince kind of in air quotes there because uh, we know how much power MCA had, but still he couldn't make a movie. He could make TV shows um, through, uh, through their, uh, through their television production waiver that they had with the, the agencies could make movies and movies, you know, they, they're cool, right? Like sure. TV is cool these days. Back then TV was, you know, a lot of you know, kind of one hour dramas and they weren't that interesting. Um, they made a lot of money. And I think Lou always wanted to make a lot of money, but I, it wasn't just about that. I think Lou wanted a, a kind of a change and he wanted uh, to slow down a little bit. Um, he even says being a talent agent is a young man's game. And so the film studio universal had been really struggling for, for some time. It was the first, uh, movie studio. It's, it's got an incredible history. It was founded in 1912 and, um, is credited actually with, with starting the Hollywood star system, ironically, uh, putting these, uh, stars under contract. I think it was when the, the head of universal back way back when noticed that if you put a certain actress in any movie, the movie would, would perform great, right? Like it didn't matter how bad or good the movie was. If she was in it, it was going to be a successful movie. And so Universal, um, in more recent years, in the 60s, had really fallen onto some hard times. Um, the guy running the studio was known more like, kind of like a bean counter. He wasn't really a creative guy. He wasn't really a... a a guy who made the trains run on time. He was just sort of a guy who kind of counted the, the numbers, right? So probably a useful guy to have around, but a questionable choice to run the studio. And so in a, in a two-step process, Lou and Jules ended up buying Universal um, Studios. First, they bought the land because the, the uh, Universal could really use the money. They were a public company at the time and they hadn't issued a dividend in a long time. And back then, dividends were very popular for a lot of big companies. And so first Jules and Lou bought the land and then used the land and all those sound stages to produce all these TV shows, right? So they were already using the studio a lot um, and then renting back uh, studio or sound stages to Universal for them to film their film and television shows. And so a few years later in 1962, uh, the Lou and Jules and MCA purchased the rest of Universal. Actually, they purchased the holding company called Decca Records. So we also got a record label as part of this. Um, and and um, at the same time, they still own this talent agency. So once they announced that they were intending to buy the studio, um, the Justice Department, which we haven't really gone into, there's a whole big antitrust investigation that's been going on for years. Um, that was looking into MCA's practices, basically restraining trade, essentially doing all the things we've been saying that they were doing, which is um, saying if you want uh, Jimmy Stewart or Betty Davison movie, you have to use all these other actors and you have to pay them all this money and all that kind of stuff. It, it's it's a practice called block booking. It was um, a lot of movie theaters had done it, and there was an antitrust thing around that. Um, um, in which, you know, the, the studios told the theaters, if you want one movie, you got to take all these movies. So block booking was, um, was something that was, uh, really not supposed to be happening. Um, and MCA was doing it with actors and, and, and directors and writers for, with, with film studios, the same way that film studios had ironically been doing it to movie theaters sometime before. So, um, the Justice Department had been looking into MCA quite a bit. They were building a case, building a case, um, 
now we're going to get into some allegedly's. Allegedly, uh, Bobby Kennedy, who was attorney general, elected in 1960. His brother was elected president in 1960. We would have started in January 61. One of the first things Bobby Kennedy does is get briefed about this MCA investigation that's going on. He knows how powerful uh, MCA is. I got a lot of friends in Washington, D.C. Jules and Lou understood and, and valued the importance of politics um and uh and political power and so um he doesn't pump the brakes on it but you know he kind of takes a measured approach on the thing uh allegedly marilyn monroe i think was having an affair with john f kennedy for a while and then he cuts it off and then she starts having an affair with bobby kennedy uh this is all very allegedly but this is you know what people seem to think is it was happening um at the same time marilyn monroe had been an mca client a few years earlier they made her a lot of money turned helped her turn into a big star and um, and then she'd really gone off the rails with a lot of pills. It was a really sad story, obviously, um, that's been reported to death. And so uh, she, she was not doing very well uh, personally. Um, and she wasn't really working anymore, I think, uh, by this point around 19 in the early 60s. And so um, MCA ends up exiting the um, it ends up going back to the government and saying, hey, what if we just shut down MCA, the agency, and we'll just buy the studio? So let us buy the studio, and at the same time, uh, we'll shut down the agency, and therefore all this antitrust stuff can go away. And apparently, uh, Bobby Kennedy agrees to all that, um, like a week after Marilyn Monroe's very suspicious, I guess, uh, death from an alleged drug overdose, like a prescription medication overdose. The conspiracy theories are that um, Lou Wasserman and MCA had the mob or somebody kill Marilyn Monroe because she was threatening, allegedly, to reveal publicly that she'd been having this uh, affair with Bobby Kennedy, and he didn't want that to happen. So in theory, he had some backroom deal with MCA in which MCA, you know, uh, uh, you know, had her whacked um, because of their Cleveland and Chicago mob connections that go back, you know, 50 years. And um, and then as soon as that was done, Bobby Kennedy says, OK, uh, yeah, your thing is fine. You can you can buy a universal shut down MCA will be fine. And, and the whole antitrust investigation just gets shut down. Years of work all over. Um, and there you go. And so as a result of that, MCA, the agency, was no more. All these actors who had agents for years, like you no longer have an agent. You have to go find another agent. Um, but And then now Lou Wasserman's running Universal. And Lou's journey running Universal will, will, expand, will extend from like 1962 when they buy it till the mid-90s um, when um, Universal finally sold to, uh, to a large Japanese company. Uh, but that's a different story. It's a very interesting one. Um, it's not really what we're going to be talking about here, but uh, but that's the that's the story of MCA, the um, maybe the most powerful agency that ever existed. Uh, I think the only one that would really come to rival it was a Creative Artists Agency, which we'll talk about next. Um, and oddly enough, um, it was uh, Michael Ovitz, one of the founders of CA. He modeled himself on Lou Wasserman. And, um, and it's in a very ironic twist of fate that we'll get into in, in future episodes. Um, it, was, it is Michael Ovitz who will be part of the instrument of Lou's eventual downfall from Universal in the 90s. Um, but that's, that's for a future episode. 
And that's where we're going to leave it for today, where Lou Wasserman takes over as chairman of Universal Studios and will continue to run the company for, for several decades. Uh, the book, again, that we, we referred to today was called The Last Mogul. It's a link in the show notes. And uh, we'll see you next time.